is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For this episode, I chat with Thomas Laub, and we cover a little bit of everything from not saying no to yourself, to the future of Broadway. We also talk about Apple TV and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this part one with Thomas Laub. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on Zoom is Thomas Laub. Thomas, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Clay. Excited to uh, dive in. I am too, and I have the most confidence that we're not going to capture all of it in this first interview. <laughs> there may have to be more parts in the future. But, um, I so think we may have to have some drinks for the next interview. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. So much to talk about here. Um, producing live theater, Apple TV, and so much more. Before we get to any of those current projects, what were your entertainment dreams growing up? As a kid? Well... I, I think this ties in nicely and you'll forgive you'll forgive me for how planned this seems, but actually the first live show that I ever saw was Guys and Dolls. Um, and I absolutely fell in love. In fact, I named my production company Runyon Land after the opening sequence in Guys and Dolls, um, kind of that lives in that world of Damon Runyon's fantastical characters, Sergeant Sarah Brown, this kind of glorified New York City, the hustle, the bustle. And for, you know, for someone growing up in middle of North Carolina, that really, that seemed appealing. And I, there was something about that, that I just loved these, these dancers and these musicians portraying this world that was kind of larger than life, very colorful, very, you know, vibrant uh, in all regards. And I think I just loved that. So when I saw that, I said, I don't really know how, but I, I want to be a part of this so bad. This is what I want to do. Um, and I, you know, there were some different routes. There were some different trial and error going on, hmm. but at the end of the day, I knew that I wanted to end up telling stories and sharing that world or being a part rather of sharing that world with folks who didn't live in New York, for folks who didn't live in Los Angeles, with folks who just needed to see a story that took them somewhere else, because that's what it did for me and why I loved it so much. How old were you when you had that discovery? I was fifth grade, which was really inconvenient, actually, <laughs> because uh, it was right on the cusp of my voice changing. So I thought I would go into theater and become this wonderful you know, I think we did Oliver the next year and I was I was singing my audition cut from Oliver and I couldn't realize why every day it got harder. <laughs> the notes weren't changing, but it was getting harder every time. And it was so frustrating, um, but it was uh, it was so wonderful to uh, to get the chance to do our school musical the next year, except for in the middle of performances. My voice changed so much that the entire little school orchestra had to learn how to do a key change without new sheet music. Um, so there were certainly again, there was trial and error. There were highs and lows, but uh, but I, I really did love it. I really did love it. How long between, I guess, then and making the decision to do this as like a, a profession, a career, um, deciding what your major was in college? What was that process? It was a it was a two pronged process. So I when I started applying for college, I think I had the the opposite experience of a lot of my contemporaries, my my best friends. I went to my parents and said, you know, mom, dad. I'm applying to college. Here's my list. And it was all business schools. 
Um, cause I thought, you know what, I, I really love this and I can't wait to watch it in the future as an audience member. And my mom came up to me and she was like, Thomas, come on. I was like, what mom? She said, you gotta apply for musical theater. You gotta apply to theater school, which I thought was a fun little reversal of roles for us. Um, considering the larger narrative there, but I said, no mom, you know, I don't, I don't need to apply to theater school. And she said, yes, you at least apply to two. Um, and so I applied to the University of Michigan and uh, their musical theater program and ended up getting in. And they allowed me to study at both the business school and within that musical theater performance program. That's so wonderful. Um, and I ended up double majoring there, which proved kind of the best of both worlds. But there was that second moment of reckoning where I realized that I, I didn't want to perform. I didn't want to be a performer. I was actually, um, of all places, and I apologize to anyone who saw this show and had to watch, you know, me tap dance. But I was in a production of Me and My Girl, uh, which, if anyone knows the show, requires a hell of a lot of tap dancing, which is a hell of a lot more tap dancing than I should ever be doing. Um, but we uh, we were in the middle of a tap rehearsal one day and I, I realized I had this moment standing on this big old stage that I was far more concerned and pissed off about the lack of marketing outside the theater for this show than I was about the fact that I couldn't tap dance. Um, and I told that story to the head of our program and he was like, all right, you know, Thomas, you win, you, you be a producer. Um, and so we, we talked about it and we just kind of, it's, I fell in love with it. I, I had my first couple producing experiences. I worked with Disney theatrical group and Ju Jamson and, back to Disney. And it was just a, the start of a wonderful journey, but all because I didn't want to tap dance in my little chef's hat in me and my girl. <laughs> what did your, what did your parents teach you about work ethic? You know, I think my parents have some of the, the craziest work ethic I've, I've really ever seen. My parents, we moved around a lot when I was a kid and everybody always asks that follow-up question. Um, were you an army brat? And uh, I always say, no, even more annoying, I was a consulting brat. Um, and so both of my parents come from the uh, come from the consulting world. And so we moved around a ton as a kid. Um, but with that said, I think they taught me that the, above all else, don't say no to yourself. It's not your job to say no to yourself. It's someone else's job. And let them do that job. They're probably getting paid more than you to do it. So let someone else say no to you, but if you want to do something, don't say no to yourself. And I think I think that starts with everything. It's, you know, that ties into work ethic, that ties into prioritizing what we want to do. Not only work ethic in terms of, you know, it's 1 a.m. and there's still more things to do, so time to do them. Um, but that also ties into it's 2 p.m. and there aren't any more things to do. So what are you going to do with your time now? It's not only work ethic in terms of work longer, but prioritize your time such that you are incented to work longer and understand that that's a thing that doesn't always have to happen. Mm -hmm. And when you're done at 2 p.m., go find joy. Find joy in what you're doing. Go do something that you wouldn't normally do. Go spend time with friends because, you know, we have a limited amount of energy in every day. And, uh, you know, it's great to spend it doing what we love doing and working and achieving and uplifting these stories that we love so much and also sometimes when we're done it's good to be done and it's good to say you know what today i'm gonna go to the planetarium i'm gonna walk over to the museum i'm gonna 
you know, walk through the park with a friend. And I think that is just as vital to everything we're doing than, uh, you know, on being, you know, having that moment in the office, burning that late night oil. I think that's uh, really just as important. Has that been a a very or more recent discovery for you on the work-life balance of it all? Or has that been something? Absolutely. And I think it, you know, it comes and goes in waves. Clay, we worked on fairy cakes together, of course. And I think during that whole period, producing amidst a global pandemic, there was far more 1 a.m. than there was 2 p.m., unfortunately. I think it was, you know, the majority of the time. It was maybe six or seven nights a week. Um, because there was a new challenge every day. There was a new variant every day. There was a new regulation every day. And it was so important that we get it right because, you know, there were real consequences off of the stage. And I think that was the major difference that we had to make sure that we got right. The responsibility level is starkly different between I want to tell a great story and I need this cast to be safe from the global pandemic. Um, and so I think there was, you know, a lot of work that went in and work that we were happy to do, but certainly work that, uh, that took a lot out of us and took a lot out of everyone. It was a very stressful time for, for everybody, making sure that everyone was safe, taken care of and able to be in a position to do their best work and have the best time doing it. Are there, uh, I guess it's a two part question, recent mentors that have taught you a significant amount, uh, about yourself or the business? Absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite people in this whole world who I have the privilege of working with right now uh, is my mentor, Mike Masalam, who led the global studio team at Netflix for a number of years and now is uh, over at Apple TV leading our team. Um, and I have the privilege of working under him and learning from him. And it's been such a pleasure. Mike and I actually met back when I was in college uh, and I invited him to see the first show I ever produced, which was a musicalization of the life of Shel Silverstein, which was so wonderful and so much fun. Uh, and Mike came, saw it, loved it, and encouraged us in the development thereof. We ended up not doing something together on it, but it was just always in the back of my mind of what a what a wonderful kind of mentor and presence he was. And then, um, and then it ended up kind of the stars aligned and he was musicalizing his own project that he was writing, directing, putting together a team on. And I came on to executive produce that project, which was so wonderful uh, with a with a really great group of artists that's in development right now. And then the stars finally aligned for us to get to work together at Apple. And I think I've learned so much from him about I, you know, I always saw this corporate veneer. I always saw kind of this distance between colleagues. And I think what Mike excels at and really taught me is seeing the humanity in the work and not viewing yourself as a subject of the work as, you know, as it goes sometimes mm. um, and making, you know, making sure that above all else, we're connecting personally with everybody on the project. We're connect with our partners, with the people who are perhaps the most frustrating. We've all had those people on projects who it seems to be every little thing, you know, becomes a point of negotiation, becomes a point of contention. But I think what Mike excels at is, you know, really, really being a person first. And I think that was, and it sounds so silly to say out loud, but I think so often in this industry, we get so boxed into our roles that we forget that it's supposed to be fun. And we don't do this for our health. You know, if we, you know, Clay, if you and I wanted a stable salary and lovely benefits, 
we could both go be accountants. And believe me, I think about it every day. But uh, but I haven't done it just yet. And I think that's so, so much due to the joy that Mike, uh, Mike brings me and I know our whole team every single day. What have you discovered about uh, communi- communicating with Mike through projects? Do you guys now speak a, a very similar language? Has there been? Oh, I hope he's listening to this because we speak. Uh, I think I've adopted so much of Mike's language and I, I, I like to think he's adopted some of mine as well. Yeah. But absolutely, I think that's the best part of getting to work together with with a team is just forming that shared vocabulary where we can have a conversation without, and you know, a third party observer is going absolutely what was just said. Um, but we were able to communicate everything we needed to do in, you know, 10 seconds or less. And I think now is that beautiful, beautiful time where Mike can look at me and kind of open his mouth to say something with a look on his face. And I can just say, I know, I know. Um, and I think that's the best part of working with someone. And that's why I love this industry. We stay for the people, right? We stay for the people, the wonderful artists who make up this community. How, how have you gotten better at asking, asking questions, asking for money, asking for permission, what have you? Absolutely. I think that is the most terrifying part of this business. At least it certainly was for me. Um, I think coming up as a young person in this industry, especially a couple of years ago, there was this absolute terror to come off as someone who didn't know anything or didn't know everything, which seems so silly, right? Because of course, of course, we're always learning. But it was so terrifying to ask any question for fear of, you know, people knowing that I hadn't been in this industry for 35 years and knew everybody, knew everything, which looking back was so ridiculous. And I think so much of the pandemic, frankly, helped in that regard and took away the veneer and took away the pretense of pretending. And I think there was so much pretending going on. And I like to think that now we can all be a little bit more frank with each other, because I think for at least a year, a year and a half, every morning meeting started with, and how are you today? Well, not good. We are not good today. And it was every morning was terrifying, right? Every yeah. headline was worse than the last, every everything crumbling. And I think so much of the pretense got stripped away when it was, how are you? I am not good. And I think that was revolutionary in a way of just, you know what? I'm going to tell you. You're asking, so I'm going to tell you. And that made us all a little bit more free to ask, whether it be asking for money, because we all got a lot more comfortable with the answer. No, I can't do that. I can't come to your house. I can't give you money. I can't do this because it was so honest and so from a place without pretense. Um, So I think that asking for anything, for information, for help, because I think that's that's the biggest thing for me was learning that, you know, you can ask for help because there's, there's nothing people love more in this industry than helping when they're able. And I think uh, that brought us all a lot closer together. Yeah. How do you how do you view the um, the industry at large? This is I, there's a, this could be a whole separate conversation. So we're going to keep it really specific. Uh, we'll keep it really specific here. The sure. the as a result of the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of younger creators coming out uh, in production, and you know, of course, writing. Uh, what do you see the if you if you had a crystal ball, what, what do you see the future kind of looking like with the Broadway landscape, given all of this shifting from the pandemic? Sure. You know, 
perhaps I'm uh, perhaps my cynical hat is on this morning after seeing the Camelot announcement for next season. Um, but I'm not sure where I see yeah. the powers that be changing at the moment, to be honest. I think we had a beautiful moment of collective learning and collective kind of collective shutting up from the white theater community, which I think was really needed, myself included. Um, and I think, frankly, that a lot of folks have kind of gone back to business as usual, the business as usual being, you know, 2018, 2019 and before in ways that are harmful, in ways that are stifling, in ways that are creatively inhibiting. Mm. And I would love to see us buck that trend. But I think the anti-Blackness that continues to rear its head in the industry is appalling to watch and extremely frustrating as it continues and continues with the creative teams that we're seeing being put together for projects ongoing is frankly embarrassing for the community, I think. Um, and I'm excited to see a, a changing in the gatekeepers of what that looks like. Um, and I think the um, the Schubert Artistic Circle program has been so wonderful. I look up to those to those folks so much, those wonderful producers with Lauren and Danny and, you know, Brian and everybody and Sammy. I mean, it's just, there are so many incredible producers, incredible artists coming up right now that are, you know, have so many incredible projects on the horizon and I'm just excited to see them. And I think, uh, I think there's so much room for us to move forward, but it certainly is disheartening to see movement back um, to, harmful practices that were uh, that have been in our industry for so long and it seems like now that the industry is you know quote unquote back up and running the uh, the powers that be the theater owners the longtime producers are are more than happy to revert to those norms which uh, i'm excited to see movement away from in the near future you've been listening to entertainment x the podcast you can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.